Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Woman 2BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Pack your bags, it's summer travel season. Can your guilt over the environmental impact of flying fit in an overhead bin? Mine can't. We'll discuss carbon offsets and travel with a writer from The Times and an expert from the NRDC. According to the equations that these climatologists came up with, our trip was responsible for melting 90 square feet of uh, Arctic sea ice in the summertime. And then with all the other pressing issues facing people of color in America, environmentalism might seem like a luxury, but two women from Brooklyn are trying to center African-American voices in the discussion. When you have a movement that's kind of predicated on sort of this elitist and almost privileged perspective, we found it extremely vital right now to redefine sustainability so that it gets back to its inherent roots. All too often, climate change is depicted as a white people's issue. You think of an environmental activist and you picture Julia Butterfly Hill embracing a redwood tree, or a Scandinavian billionaire at a Greenpeace gala, or that NYU environmental studies major who put all her trash in a mason jar for a year. It does make sense in some ways. Rich white people are largely responsible for the situation in which we find ourselves. But communities of color the world over are the most likely to suffer because of climate change. And I'm not just talking about residents of island nations like the Maldives. I'm talking about people here in the U.S. too. Here to tell us more about why whitewashing environmental activism serves no one are the co-founders of Sustainable Brooklyn, Dominique Drakeford. Welcome to Woman 2BK. Thank you. And Whitney McGuire. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. What is Sustainable Brooklyn and what need is it filling? I'll take this. Go for it. (laughs) Sustainable Brooklyn is a community-based initiative uh, that works to really bridge the gaps between what you mentioned is the current sustainability movement and the perception of it and targeted communities. Targeted communities being communities of color that are uh, first and most impacted by unsustainable practices, um, not just involving environmental issues, but economic barriers, um, barriers to social equity and health, all of these factors play into what we consider to be sustainability. And Dominique, why did you see a need for an organization like this? Well, definitely I've, I've been in the sustainability space for 10 or so years, and it occurred to me that not only was the narrative of the, the conversation completely whitewashed, and that it, that's encompassing who's uh, writing the articles, who's the audience members at a lot of these, you know, sustainability-focused events, who has agency in the space, who... Yeah, who's creating solutions. Who's creating solutions, who's speaking about it, who's, you know, represented. Because the the sustainability movement, quite frankly, has stalled, you know, and people are kind of like, what's happening? And it's like, well, because you've omitted like large sections of our community um, of society from these conversations, these people who are who are most impacted, like my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, recently saw an unprecedented amount of storms that really destroyed parts of the community. And this is, I, you know, I grew up in a predominantly people of color neighborhood, lower incomes. We've been hit by white flight, gentrification, food apartheid, and now climate change. All of these factors play into the sustain the sustainability of communities where we come from. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you have a movement that's kind of predicated on sort of this 
elitist and almost privileged perspective, we found it extremely vital right now to redefine sustainability so that it gets back to its inherent roots, which is a very indigenous concept, and especially looking at black liberation and looking at the history of black people and people of color in general, sustainability has been a mantra for us uh, since day one. So we wanted to reframe it so that it actually makes sense and actually is sustainable. Absolutely. Um, Whitney, in preparing for this segment, my producer Ross told me an anecdote about uh, in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement, he was interviewing a teen activist and Mm -hmm. he was like, oh, are you going to the global climate march? And this activist said, no, I'm not. Like, that's a white person's issue. I have bigger fish to fry. We're dying in the streets. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you would say to that. Uh, Hell yes. (laughs) That's what I would say. I totally agree. You know, I think that's one of the not necessarily hurdles, but just something that Dominique and I, it's at the forefront of our minds, you know, how to make the connection between the issues that traditionally one would think about in terms of issues that impact black communities or um, communities of black and indigenous people. We have criminal justice or or criminal injustice, really, being at the forefront of the issue. But all of like climate change, all of this impacts um, education, healthcare, you know, the prison industrial complex, it's all interrelated mm-hmm. because it's all based on blocks to our survival, to our sustention as people. Um, you were interviewed in the Bushwick Daily. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I'm curious, there's a, a line where you say that looking back, you realize that sustainability had always been part of your lives. But because the stories told by the mainstream movement didn't look like it, you didn't really recognize it. Can you give me some examples of what you mean? Yeah, definitely. I remember, so I'm from Oakland, and I, so let's look at fashion, because that was one of, that was actually both of our entry points. Thrifting and vintage shopping and pulling things from my grandma's closet, for me, was very, it was second nature. When I moved to New York to the fashion scene, thrifting and vintage and trying to insert myself in this space with an eclectic look, it wasn't seen as sustainable. And I, I mean, there's a million examples, but I thought that that was interesting that secondhand clothing, there was this taboo around secondhand clothing. And I know plenty of black women who secondhand shop. And the fact that that narrative wasn't part of the sustainability movement, those conversations, which secondhand is the most radical form of sustainable fashion there is. And so when, you, when you're looking at somebody who thrifts or vintage shops, and they're not inserted into the conversation as somebody who can inspire others to do the same, that's an issue. Right, right. So it's not just maybe, um, you know, the the militant cyclist who bikes everywhere. No. Where you have a certain idea of that person being like, you know, a young 20-something white dude. There are many other ways that communities of color have been practicing sustainability, uh, but we just don't see it reflected. Is yes, that right? there's a very yeah. there's a very specific look of those who are in the sustainable fashion space. Like we had a we, <laughs> we just did a workshop recently with a company called uh, Good Work and uh, another organization called Driven Society and during our workshop we just like we googled images of like 
eco-friendly product or someone eating organic food or someone, do, you know, going on a hike. And all of the photos and images were largely just, you know, white people partake, partaking in, in these activities. And then we posed questions to the largely black and brown audience. Do you all hike? Do you all eat organic food? Do you all, you know, conserve it in, in other ways? And the majority, majority of the responses, of the responses was, was, yes, yes. <laughs> we do yes. do these things. So I think, you know, like for me, my entry point was just seeing like how my grandmother, uh, a, a woman who was born in 1919 and a survivor of the um, depression, how she conserved plastic bags, how she conserved foil, you know, and we would kind of make fun of it when I was growing up. But then realizing, looking back on the things that have traditionally been considered ghetto or, you know, like, oh, that's ascribed to to a certain po- a subset of our population are really like inherently the, the practices that we need to go back to and we right. need to honor. So it sounds like part of what what Sustainable Brooklyn does is asking for a seat at the table within the larger climate change. No. We, we created the we table. Create, yeah. Okay. Our own table. Okay. And so how how do you work or do you work with sort of like larger environmental justice organizations? We show up. <laughs> we show up to the spaces first and foremost. But really, we're in an interesting, I think, cultural shift right now societally um, where people are starting to engage more with these conversations. We're definitely shedding light on the truth of colonialism and systems of oppression within the context of sustainability, which is a, a conversation that, in my experience, has very rarely been had within sustainability. But at this juncture, it's mandatory. I recently, at an event, before we even started speaking, I made the entire audience, which was predominantly white, say a few words to get comfortable with the fact that we're going to be dismantling a few things. You have to say racism, slavery, colonialism, privilege, all of these words that are that typically make folks uncomfortable, but in order to come up with Uh, strategic solutions that are really going to be sustainable for our local community and the community at large, that needs to take place. Dominique, you're talking about colonialism Mm -hmm. and slavery and white supremacy, I think, really gets at the heart of one of the biggest injustices about climate change to me, which is that we are in the situation that we're in because global north white (laughs) colonialist nations um, had a century to develop and, you know, release fossil fuels into the air. Yeah, the industrial age. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And now that we are all up Schitt's Creek and, you know, predominantly equatorial nations are are feeling the brunt of this, it's like, well, we all got to do this together, guys. And I think China, like, called bullshit and was like, wait a second. We didn't do this. We didn't do this. Also, like, we, it's our time now. Don't we deserve to have some time to catch up economically? And and now, Mm. now, of course, that we see that it's a problem, we're like, oh, no, actually, everyone has to, like, pull together equal share, Mm -hmm. even though, oh, yeah, we were, like, enslaving your people for centuries. And, you know, we built our nations on on your back. (laughs) slavery still today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm wondering, does the idea of like climate reparations come up at all? Mm. We'll talk about reparations, (laughs) but climate reparations. Ooh, I like that. Let's figure it out. Let's Let's, figure it out. That'll be really easy to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... So talk to me about some of um, the specific projects that you guys are tackling. You talked about you have a retreat coming up. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you're doing on the ground in your community in Brooklyn? Mm-hmm. Well, our first event uh, was actually just last year. And we uh, held a town hall meeting at 
Mokana Museum in connection with an organization called Brothers and Sisters. And um, it was really just an event for us to to gauge the the level of engagement within sustainability within the, the black community people in Brooklyn. From there, we created a newsletter and addressed all a lot of those issues and provided resources directly uh, for people who signed up uh, for our newsletter at that event. Then we had a, a, a dinner that was really just focused on gathering stakeholders within the cannabis industry in the room, people who are policymakers, people who are educators, artists, um, to really discuss how cannabis legislation is a civil rights issue at this point. Um, Do you also see it? I think that we've talked on this show definitely about how cannabis is a social justice and a criminal justice issue. Is it also a climate justice issue? And if so, how? I don't know if it's necessarily a climate justice issue, but it's definitely a sustainability issue. We we consider the drug war, you know, the decimation that was created by the drug war to be one of the main focal points that we that we want to address in terms of sustainability, because it caused so much damage within our communities. And we have like generations to, to build, you know, rebuild. Um, we're still really just like getting out of Jim Crow, slavery, all those things. So it's it's a sustainability issue from the standpoint of economic um, education and social um, justice, climate Yes, I mean the I more even, we yeah, the more we plant hemp, <laughs> the, yeah. the better the the carbon emissions. Like sure, we'll yeah. clean up the air. <laughs> and when you say sustainable in that context, are you talking about a community's ability to sustain itself yes. through future generations? Absolutely. Part of which is obviously um, environmental and, and climate issues, yes. but is also interwoven with all these other topics that you're discussing. Absolutely. So if you have a system that is unjustly uh, throwing in black and brown people into the criminal justice system, correct? A lot of those people are making, they're slaves, essentially. Mm-hmm. They're making clothing for these big brands that aid in carbon emissions. Carbon emissions. And so that's a whole cycle that's, that's leading to the environmental crisis and environmental degradation. So to me, they're labor uh, intensive and slaves. So yeah. and essentially, also, I saw this on Twitter, and I, it's not fact checked, so don't quote me on this. But right. I saw somebody tweet with all of the wildfires in California that actually a lot of the people who are fighting fires are prisoners. Yeah, they are. So they I mean, are. that is a is a crazy <laughs> cycle, right? Where you have incarcerated individuals directly putting out fires that are the cause of climate change. Yes, yeah. the fires Absolutely. that probably put them there in the first place. <laughs> right. And a lot of those fires were were happening on indigenous land as well. For our listeners and viewers in Brooklyn, do you have any local events coming up if they want to get involved? How can they? Absolutely. Uh, We always try to do volunteer days. So our first one was at Good Life Garden in Bushwick. Our second one is going to be at Red Hook Community Farm Composting Operation. It's um, a Brooklyn Botanic Garden uh, initiative, and we're going to be learning about compost. Um, Part of the reason why I wanted to really create Sustainable Brooklyn with Dominique is because I am not an expert at all. Um, And I wanted to learn more. I think the misconception, especially within sustainability, is that you have to have a degree. You have to have worked in the professional space. You have to be well-versed. That is not true and an inhibitor to a lot of the community efforts that we could be seeing across the board. So we want people to really see like, oh, there are people in my community who look like me, who are from where I'm from, trying to make a difference in, in the world. 
So we recently had our first symposium called Earth, and we had 14 panelists, all people of color, who led the conversation uh, through a series of lightning talks, through um, a panel discussion. We had a breathwork specialist. We had a movement psychiatrist. We had a person speaking about self-love and sustaining self. We had this whole uh, half-day Afrofuturism. We talked about sustainability from such a different perspective. We really change the lens on creating a dynamic conversation around what sustainability looks like on the ground in local communities. And that was the first of a four-part series. So we're going to have air, water, and fire coming up soon. Oh, great. Okay. And so people can find out more about these symposiums and ways to volunteer and get involved at sustainablebk.co. Sustainablebk.co. Yeah. And our Instagram Instagram handle is is sustainablebk. Yes. All right. Well, Whitney, Dominique, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mackenzie. If you're anything like me, you think about climate change a lot. Not like all the time, because that's a bummer, but a lot. Maybe you bring a canvas bag to the grocery store when you remember to. You don't own a car because it's New York. You think composting should be more of a thing. You're willing to do your part, especially if it's not inconvenient. But then there's air travel. From a climate change perspective, getting on a plane is the single worst thing a person can do. And there's no psychological band-aid to assuage your jet-setting guilt. No paper straw that builds up your sense of self-righteous smugness faster than it disintegrates in your iced coffee. Air travel devastates the environment, and I do it anyway. All the time. Am I a terrible person? Here to tell me yes, probably, is New York Times columnist Andy Newman, who recently wrote about this very issue. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you, Mackenzie. You are a terrible person, and so am I. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. We're in it together. Um, we also have a carbon offset expert with the National Resources Defense Council, Peter Miller, who joins us by phone. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Andy, why did you feel compelled to write this article that made many people feel very, very bad about themselves? Well, A, I wanted everyone to feel as bad as I do. Um, I have a, There was an editor for the New York section of the paper, which is the section I normally work for, and she took a new job as the travel editor. And she said, hey, we're open for travel stories. Why don't you write a travel story for me? I said, really, the only travel story I want to write is the one about how air travel is morally indefensible and you should never ever do it and then your whole section will go out of business and she said ha 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 sure why don't you write that um, that's unbelievable that she greenlit it as the new editor of the travel section yeah Kudos she well she she was like you know you can't do it exactly that way but if you want to investigate sort of what the the moral i mean what the climate implications are of air travel and really kind of talk about what the philosophical questions are, it would be something of interest to people and and go for it. So I did. Well, you did a great job. It's a real downer. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, The comments have been going nuts. Yes. You talk about how to measure the impact of a flight in a couple different ways. Can you talk about tangibly how you calculated the cost of a flight from, say, New York to Los Angeles? Okay. I'm not a scientist at all, although I like to make little spreadsheets and multiply things. So the first thing I had to figure out is how much carbon dioxide or its equivalent these flights would generate. And there are all kinds of online 
carbon footprint calculators where you say, I'm flying from here to here, and they spit out a number and they'll say, your seats on those flights will generate 2.4 metric tons of carbon dioxide. So if you want to offset them, that's how much you need to buy. Talk to me about what it means to release a metric ton or however many metric tons of, of CO2. It's a measurement of the amount of greenhouse gas your flight is, is emitted. And the interesting thing I found out while reporting the story is there are people who have done the, the really hard calculations as to how much actual damage on the earth the emission of one metric ton of carbon dioxide will cause. And so I was interested in just taking myself as an example. Me and my wife and daughter f- flew to Miami for vacation a couple of months ago. And so I just wanted to plug in all those numbers and see what the impact of that of those flights would be. And I kept doing the math over and over again because it didn't seem possible. But according to the equations that these climatologists came up with, our trip uh, was responsible for melting 90 square feet of uh, Arctic sea ice in the summertime. In other words, if you if you picture the whole Arctic sea ice cover as one big thing, because we went on those flights, it shrank at the edges by about 90 square feet, which is like three times the size of this table, like a measurable amount. You right. could stand a bunch of people on, on, a, on a piece of ice that size. You could stand a polar bear you on it. You could stand several like polar bears on yeah. that. Uh, and so having that kind of really tangible idea made me feel like, holy crap, you know, this is a very serious decision you're making when you're choosing to buy an airline ticket and fly somewhere. You also address the issue of impact of a flight from a moral and philosophical perspective as well. And you talk about a a philosopher and academic who says, no storms or floods or droughts or heat waves can be traced to my individual act of driving. If I refrain from driving for fun on this one Sunday, there is no individual who will be helped in the least. And you and some other academics rebut that. Yes, although that that philosopher had some problems with the way I characterized what he said. But he did say that. He he said, morally, it is preferable not to go driving if you don't need to. But because you can't prove that there is a specific impact from your taking a joyride, therefore, you're under no moral obligation not to take this. And so there are some philosophers who said, well, maybe we can sort of measure the the impact on, on other human beings of your trip. And so they, you know, took tons and tons of numbers and crunched them together in a very, very general ballpark way. And one philosopher came up with this equation that I think he said that over the course of your life, you will, uh, a typical American would emit enough greenhouse gas to cause the suffering or deaths of two other people. I forget what he, what he yeah, said. Yeah, it's, it's something serious like suffering and or deaths. Serious suffering and or deaths of, of two future people. Of two people. That's a lot to live with. And then you start to ask yourself, okay, what, what can I do about that? I can drive less and fly less, and I want to do that. But what are the ways that we can sort of mitigate the impact of what we've done? And the way that you landed on that you feel best about is carbon offsets. Yeah, best is a relative thing. All right. Absolutely, it's relative, yes. No, so, I mean, I knew that carbon offsets existed. I, I didn't really understand how they worked, and maybe Peter, uh, our guest, can tell us a little bit more about, about how they work. But basically, you, you give somebody some money, and they give the money to a project that is doing something to 
take carbon dioxide out of the air, uh, and thereby you're offsetting the carbon dioxide you're emitting by flying or driving or whatever you're doing. So let's go to Peter, because I think that carbon offsets are something that, you, a term you hear bandied about quite frequently. I really don't know how they work. Can you tell us what carbon offsets are, Peter? Sure. Uh, let me try to do that uh, succinctly. A carbon offset is a investment in a project that helps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or equivalently sequester greenhouse gas in a forest or other uh, natural uh, system uh, that can be used to offset emissions from some other activity, often involving the combustion of fossil fuel like jet fuel or gasoline. It's a way to compensate for the emissions from our daily activities. So it's actually a, a pretty complex system, right? This is um, not an exact science. You are giving money usually to a middleman who then decides what type of projects to invest in. Is that right? Well, for a consumer, that's right. Uh, you typically don't buy directly from the project developer. The project developer will be a forest landowner or a dairy uh, in a coal mine. Uh, there's a whole range of different project types, and that developer will implement a project, create the emission reductions, and then a broker will uh, sell those uh, offset credits to uh, individual consumers. When you have a, um, a an entity that's involved in a compliance program, such as California's cap-and-trade program, where there's mandatory emission reductions on large facilities like a refinery, in that case, uh, the, the refiner may buy credits directly from the offset project developer. And so, Andy, you tested out a couple of these different offerings. Is that correct? It's, I didn't quite test them out. Car carbon offsets sound good, but there are some climate people who think that they're kind of a cop-out because it's a way to assuage your guilt without really morally taking ownership of what you're doing. This professor said, it's like paying someone to diet for you. And another person I talked to, a scientist, said, even if you're offsetting the exact carbon dioxide from your flight, just by buying a ticket, you're kind of supporting the airline industry. They're going to run more flights and expand airports and do all these things that are going to basically increase the footprint of aviation. Right. And there's questions about the efficacy of some of these projects as well. Like ProPublica recently reported that I think specifically in Brazil, uh, when you purchased offsets in a forest context to prevent deforestation, they argued that perhaps it was worse than doing nothing. Peter and I did talk about what, what are some of the problems with carbon offsets? How do you know when you're giving somebody money to build a project that they wouldn't have just gone ahead and done it anyway? Like right. how much is your money really making a difference. And so Peter talked about methane and how that is uh, capturing the methane from like l landfill or from cow farts or, or manure decomposition is a way that's measurably uh, satisfactory. Peter, this is another thing that I really don't understand. Talk to me about methane capture because I have this mental image of someone like with a giant plastic bag, like capturing <laughs> cow farts, and then I don't know what happens to that. Tell me practically, what does this look like? Well, it's an interesting image. Uh, it's, uh, it's somewhat different, but in, in, in um, a dairy operation, you have a lot of cows that are 
eating hay and other feed, and in the manure, there's a lot of um, uh, methane gas release. So uh, a traditional dairy operation will collect that manure, put it in a uh, pond, and the methane will just simply go into the atmosphere. Um, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's a stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, and it will increase global warming. What a methane capture operation will do is take that methane and cover it with a plastic bag, if you will. Uh, cover it so that the methane is uh, captured, uh, siphoned off, and um, either burnt directly, which transforms it into carbon dioxide, lower greenhouse gas warming impact, or uh, cleans it up and uses, uses it to generate electricity or puts into a gas pipeline to replace fossil methane, fossil natural gas, that would otherwise be uh, used. So uh, in either case, the, the, the greenhouse gas impact is measurable and, uh, and reduced to be tracked. So, Peter, when you talk about purchasing offsets or carbon credits, I'm reminded a little bit of like, um, you know, Save the Pandas with the World Wildlife Fund, where it's like you're adopting a specific uh, panda somewhere and you're in charge of that panda. Your money's going to that panda. Um, Offsets sound a little bit similar where you are purchasing credits for your flight and it's going to a specific project. Can you decide like which which project you want it to go to, or even which individual and which country you want it to go to? Well, yes. Um, depending on the broker, um, it is possible to, to identify specific projects that you want to support. In any case, the critical thing is that you are buying a particular offset credit for a particular ton of emission reductions, and that ton can't be resold or double-counted elsewhere. Uh, in a good offset program, each ton of emission reductions has a specific serial number with it, and once purchased and retired, can't be resold elsewhere. That's critical to avoid double counting. Andy, you decided uh, that you will continue to travel, that you will continue to fly, but that you are going to purchase carbon offsets for each trip you take in the future. That's correct. This is something that readers, this is how I ended the story by saying, and guess what, we're going to Greece People got mad at you. This summer. And uh, can I read some of the please, responses? So, please. Uh, so basically what I, I, what I wrote was that we, we're going to Greece this summer after all, these, after all this research I've done and, and how horrible it is. But I will buy uh, enough, enough offsets to offset the methane of a dozen cows. Cows are really very potent creators of, of yes. greenhouse gases. Big belters. Uh, and I believe that you said uh, you, you and your, your, um, your daughter's applying for... High school, right? Yeah, that right. And you said the process has been really tough. We deserve. Yeah, I, w- I, w- I, w- I was. Upset. I was basically just trying to say yes. We, and here are our reasons for doing it. They're as lame and bourgeois as the reasons anybody gives for their, you know, for whatever climate change causing activities they participate in. Um, so yes. So this one reader wrote, um, "You've broken my heart, knowing full well the consequences, and yet still choosing personal gratification." over the hope that your sacrifice now will help as every small action adds up. Now I really know that catastrophe is unavoidable. Wow, uh, you broke a reader's heart. Someone Have you else gotten wrote, feedback like that for another article you've written before? No, I, I, and I knew uh, my wife was a little bit leery about my writing the story. Once she read the ending, she said, like, people are going to hate us. And I said, well, that's, they're only going to hate me 
don't worry about it. Uh, and I knew that I was going to get lots of comments like this, but I, I had sort of written myself or lived myself into a corner of I have to live with this decision and it's relevant to the story and I have to write it and put it in there and all I can do is own it and say, yes, this is what I'm doing. You know, hate me for it if you want. But, and so, someone else wrote, never have I read a more distasteful and selfish article than the one by Andy Newman in the travel section who after setting forth his comments on travel and climate change ends with his last paragraph showing his selfishness and defiance and his privilege. How obnoxious do your writers aim to be? So. All I can think of is if, if I'm really that terrible, then maybe I can inspire some people to, you know, by, by my negative example, to act less selfishly. Sure. But I do, I do as of this morning, have, uh, as, as of the morning of the taping of this podcast, now have experience in buying um, carbon offsets. I went to this site called Cool Effect. I was looking for specifically cow emissions uh, projects, because that's what I said I was going to be writing about. And uh, on, on the Cool Effect website, you can buy offsets uh, that go to help build biogas digesters at cattle operations in Vietnam and China. And these would basically take the manure that these cows are, are releasing and converting that methane into something positive. And they give you... This, um, Look at what you got. You got a poop they certificate. Got a, where's the camera? Here. They, uh, they give you a poop certificate so that you can feel um, feel a little bit better about yourself. And, and you Peter, can gift it to people, it looks yeah, like, Yes. So I, I, I got one for myself and my wife and another one for my daughter. And I, got, I, I, I bought enough uh, offsets so that theoretically, at least, uh, it's going to cover 30 megatons of carbon dioxide and our flights are only uh, generating 10 megatons of I mean, metric tons of carbon dioxide. So therefore, theoretically, Peter, the world would be better off than if I'd never taken this trip at all. Is that correct? Well, Andy, uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's fair to say we're all in the middle on this one. Um, I hope you have a great trip to Greece, and certainly buying uh, 30 tons of carbon offset is um, much better than taking a trip to Greece and not buying the 30 tons of uh, offsets that makes a significant difference. Um, but I think we all have to recognize that uh, being human on the planet today uh, results in greenhouse gas emissions that we're all collectively responsible for, and the solution has to be both individual and collective. So uh, I think you're right to encourage your readers to offset their emissions, but it's uh, important for your readers to also recognize that that alone doesn't absolve any individual. And Peter, maybe we'll close it with a question to you. I'm curious, you work for the NRDC. Um, obviously, your colleagues are people who are professional environmentalists and think deeply about climate change. Do you fly? Do your colleagues fly? How do you try to mitigate the fact that you probably have to go to conferences in other countries? How should we, if, if we are really concerned as individuals about trying to cut down on our travel, how do you think about getting on an airplane? So um, I think the first thing for people to do is to reduce their emissions wherever they can. Uh, take public transit, walk instead of driving in a solo car. Do a, a meeting uh, remotely. Do a Skype link. Um, if possible, rather than taking a plane flight. Buy renewable energy, if that's an option from your utility. Do things that you can 
due to reduce your emissions. Uh, and then, for those emissions that are left, buy offsets where possible. And, and finally, be sure to make your voice heard when election time comes around. Vote for people who uh, support climate action and for policies, uh, climate policies that are on the ballot. And certainly encourage everybody who's listening to, um, to do what they can to reduce their emissions. Well, Peter, thank you so much. Andy, thank you as well. I felt deeply seen by your article in a way that didn't feel great. Uh, I appreciate your writing it and putting it out there. Thanks. Thanks for your time. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to offset my summer travel plans. Or you could review Woman 2BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 